Welcome to a podcast about tactics. I'm John McKenzie and I'm joined by a man I like to think of as the Ralph Rangnick of the tactics media space, Konstantin Ekner. Konstantin started working as a freelance journalist in his teenage years, mostly covering football and politics. And over the course of his career, his work has appeared on the BBC, ESPN, DW, The Times, Eurosport, Deutschland Funk and many more. He's now working as a multimedia host and commentator, but most importantly for us, he helped to found and continues to edit Spielverlagerung, a leading football tactics website. Konstantin, it's great to have you on. It's great to be here. Uh, and thanks for the introduction. That was uh, quite nice. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I take all your compliments. I frame it and I hang it on my wall. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure I've missed some accolades that you have there, but uh, these were the, the ones that I just got yes, on a of quick... Course. Overall swell guy is also (laughs) (laughs) just kidding. And now you can add a podcast about tactics to that list. So the first guest. So what a privilege. It's on top of my list in terms of guest appearances. Yes. <laughs> no, it's, I mean, it's great. Uh, first of all, I mean, that you you are starting that project and uh, doing something on, on football tactics. I mean, of course, the football tactics space has been somewhat exploded over the uh, past few years. Exploited and exploded. <laughs> uh, but uh, still, I mean, I still think there's a lot more to do. And so, yeah, great stuff. Well, let's get to the heart of the issue immediately. As a man who's named a podcast about tactics, a podcast about tactics, I do have to ask you, do you have any regrets about the name Spielverlagerung? No, not really. I mean, when Spielverlagerung was founded, uh, it was founded by a couple of German-speaking guys, a couple of Germans, one Austrian, um, who is also, I think, quite well known. Um, So I think at the time there wasn't really any, I don't know, any idea or any vision to go internationally. I mean, if you look back at that point in time, um, there was already Michael Cox with Sonal Marking mm-hmm. and Spielverlagerung was more meant as an alternative or as a German-speaking alternative in a way. A little bit a little bit different, of course, but um, there was also Jonathan Wilson with his book and all these other things uh, happening in the UK and let's say internationally in the English-speaking world and there wasn't much in Germany. And I mean, that was that was 10 years ago. So Germans, they speak English, but they don't speak English that well, <laughs> especially like the, like the generation before me um, has some trouble with like really going deep down uh, the English route. Um, so I guess at the time it was more about, hey, we, we should have something in German, in Germany. And the uh, word term Spielverlagerung is something you hear in a sophisticated, let's say, live match commentary. Mm. Um, so I think like connecting to the people in Germany and in German football, to the journalists, to the commentators, to the coaches, that was actually a great name uh, because it wasn't it wasn't like passing or I don't know, <laughs> <laughs> or uh, just goal scoring or, or something. Um, no, it was something different and st- still something everyone understood. So I guess in that in that point of uh, from that point of view, it was a great name. Afterwards, we realized that uh, no one outside of Germany or outside of the German speaking atm- uh, hemisphere uh, actually can can pronounce the name correctly, <laughs> which is, of course, uh, definitely something no one uh, calculated beforehand. Um, Anyhow, I mean, whatever. It's, it's also quite fun. I mean, I'm just uh, to go off the rails a little bit or to digress a little bit here uh, before I give over to you again. I mean, I just uh, worked at the Olympics, uh, at the Winter Olympics, um, and I did commentary there for for, uh, for the highlights, uh, highlight videos of all the events. I mean, I have trouble like pronouncing some of these names, and uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I had to Google and Forvo all these uh, different like Chinese names, um, and in the end, I think everyone understood me, and it's the same with Spielverlagerung. If like someone says Spielfer or something, still people know what it is. <laughs> so I guess uh, the brand is bigger than the name. And for our audience, how would you translate Spielverlagerung? 
it's basically the uh, switch play, uh, meaning like, let's say you are on the left side of the field and you play a long diagonal ball from the left side to the right side. Mm. It's, Spiel, it's Spielverlagerung. It's like you, you, Verlagerung means like putting it from left to right, putting it from right to left, switching the balance, you know, Verlagerung, like like uh, pushing it in, in, a, in a different direction. Mm. And Spiel is just game. You, you, you push the game, you push the game situation in a different direction. Mm. Uh, you're opening up the field. And it's something you hear, you hear even in, in like what, what's the equivalent of Sunday leagues in Germany, Spielverlagerung. It's hmm. something a coach would uh, would scream at his players, like, eh, Spielverlagerung, like, you know, <laughs> play the ball to the right side where there's like only one guy over there, you know, like a typical situation, like oh, everything is crowded on one side and then you play the Spielverlagerung, you're opening up the field and um, uh, suddenly you have a different situation there. Yeah, and I pride myself on being one of the few English speakers who can say it, so I really like the name, to be honest. In terms of what we're going to do over the course of this episode, I think we should start off talking about the history of Spielfer, as we'll call it, before moving on to talk a little bit about the tactics media in general. So I'm informed that 2011 was the year that everything kicked off, so I'm interested to hear your side of the story. How did Spielverlagerung come about? I mean, as I said at the time, there wasn't really something in the German-speaking world. Um the, uh, in terms of like tactics blocks, I mean, there was still, you have to remember like 2011, I mean, I was, I was a first year student, um, there were, blocks were still a big thing. I, I know it has, it has changed in a way, you know, static websites, static blocks are not a big thing anymore, I guess. Um, but what, um, at the time there wasn't really anything in the, in terms of tactical analysis in, in Germany, um, other than maybe you, you hear it on TV from Ralf Rangnick, for instance, uh, a couple of years before that, or from Jürgen Klopp uh, during the... 2006 World Cup during the home World Cup for the Germans. You didn't hear anything about it. There was, as I said, Michael Cox with Sonar Marking, which was a small blog uh, because it was only run by him. There was Jonathan Wilson with his book. There were a few other things happening in, in the English-speaking media. Um, and I'm, I mean, I, I uh, spent one year in Great Britain as a when I was at school. Um, so I understood the language quite well, um, although not, not as good as or not as well as today, but still. Um, and our, our people the same and but still there were a couple of guys who were just writing on the message board of transfermarkt.de you know um, and if you go back maybe or i don't know if posts are still up there but the message board of that particular website was really um a place of of knowledge in a way um, not only in terms of tactics, but in terms of a lot of things. Like there, like, there were like lawyers uh, sharing um, insights into how contracts work. And there were like economists. I mean, there were also like, of course, just weird guys doing weird stuff and, and you know, <laughs> talking talking shit about uh, coaches and players. But there were also like economists talking about like the ins and outs of, uh, you know, the I income structure of a football club or something. Um, and there were also guys talking about tactics um, and, and, and coaching and sharing ideas and so. And I think like, um, I mean, the message boards are great. And that was also still a time when message boards were still a big thing. Uh, that was before Reddit, I think. Um, it's really hard because 10 years ago and I'm, I have a, <laughs> I, I don't have a bad memory, but I, I don't really think a lot about the past, to be honest. Um, but uh, I think there was still a, a message boards were a big thing. Um, but it, it's still, I mean, if you write a lot of, if you write like two pages on a message board, it's still, it's kind of uh, uh, like a black hole. I mean, it gets lost a little bit there, right? I mean, it's not really published. It's not really some appropriate uh, way of publishing something. And then the idea came, uh, why not starting a blog, la launching a blog, launching a website, doing something like that. And I don't know. I mean, uh, I'm I'm sometimes, I'm, I'm, I'm more of a whole, uh, class half full type of guy, but I still think like there, there's a little bit of skepticism at the time. Uh, will something like that work? Um and I 
just recently talked to someone, Jonas, uh, Jonas Friedrich, who is right now the Champions League commentator on Amazon Prime Video on, in Germany. Amazon Prime Video is one of the two podcasters who have the Champions League rights in Germany. So he's and he's he's their star commentator, so to say, and he's a friend of mine. And we talked about it, and he remembered that like in 2012, maybe six months after the site was launched, he wrote actually an email to um, the official Spielverlagerung email address, like info at what, whatever, uh, info at spielverlagerung.de, uh, and he wrote like, hey, guys, great job, I learned a lot. And um, he actually was one of the early adapters, uh, the early readers and he used and he at the time was uh, not as big as, as today as in terms of being a commentator but he was still a commentator for Sky Germany and he used some of the stuff that was written there uh, in his in his live commentary um, and he was not the only one there was Oliver Seidler who's also a Sky commentator and there were also coaches reading it and you got feedback and in 2013 the website was uh, nominated for the what is called in Germany Krimmer, on Krimmer Online Award, which is an award for uh, online projects, podcasts, websites, whatever. And today also multi multimedia uh, stuff. Um, and it was uh, nominated for the category, in, I think it was like a knowledge and education or so. Because it was a knowledge and education project in terms of football. Um, it didn't win the award, but it was still nominated as a football plug in, in that category. Like next to, I don't know, what what, what was uh, what else was nominated. But there were like, you know, a, a website about uh, a science website or something. You know, stuff like that. And then there was a football blog um, in terms of, edu you know, for education and knowledge. Um, and I think like at that point, it really started off. Uh, it really uh, got, got off an, an rocket start, basically. And I remember also one breakthrough was in 20. 13 and it helped of course i mean there are some circumstances that help when you launch something like that um the, the two german teams uh, dortmund and bayern played the champions league final um so german football in 2013 was essentially at the pinnacle of its being i mean 2014 then the world cup win so it was that time uh, and Jürgen klopp was you know was on top of his game in a way um with dortmund i mean even if he didn't win and even if he um wasn't maybe where he is today but still like you know there was the Jürgen klopp hype the dortmund hype there was a little bit of the bayern hype um bayern was in the final before uh, the year before and in 2009 so i mean bayern was really also internationally like one of the most competitive teams i remember in 2013 when there was the semi-finals Dortmund against Real Madrid and if people remember the first game wasn't played in Dortmund and Dortmund won 4-1 to one against Real Madrid four Lewandowski goals and that was like all right Dortmund killed Madrid in one night basically it got close in the second game in the return leg but still and at the time uh, the broadcaster the, uh, the public broadcaster ZDF in Germany they invited the Spielverlangen guys to be there at the game in Dortmund and sit next to the live commentator and basically give some feedback on live commentary um, and Dortmund won the thing 4-1 four, four and then was the Champions League final and Spielverlagerung was allowed to live blog on, on the website of the broadcaster and stuff like that and then the year, the next year Germany won the World Cup and everyone was like oh right like you know football was football was huge in Germany um, and, and Spielverlagerung was you know was the one niche website that was a little bit outside of like the, the mainstream but it was still like the biggest niche website you can find it was like it was a niche and it was big at the same time it was a bit, a bit, a bit weird uh, but I think the circumstances helped a lot, especially with the Jürgen Klopp hype, because Jürgen Klopp, like, uh, all of a sudden, like, counter-pressing, all right, um, or gegenpressing in Germany, and all, and all these other things, like, were discussed all of a sudden. Um, 
yeah, I mean, I guess if that wouldn't have, uh, if that wouldn't happened at the time, who knows? But it happened, and uh, Klopp did, did quite well for Spieverlagen in a way. But yeah, that's I, I guess that's that's the that's the story behind it basically. Um, and then from there, it uh, I think 2014 was still like the pinnacle of everything in, in terms of German football, or 2013-14 even for Spieverlagen. Like if you look at the numbers, the visitor, uh, the visiting numbers, the viewers, uh, the readers, it was it was. Tremendous, like you got millions of readers per year at the time uh, for a blog, right? Uh, interesting hearing you talking about Michael Cox and Jonathan Wilson as obviously the two English correlates, but I think it's fascinating that they, they, they both obviously work in the media and their work is very much public-facing media work, whereas with Spiel for Lagerung, you get the impression that it's much more industry-focused. It has that, it seems to me anyway, a desire to, to sort of recapitulate what is being done in clubs in a way that people can read it which is quite different i think to what 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 wilson and and cox are doing i think their their job is to sort of present stuff simply to a, a general public audience whereas i don't think spiel verlagerung makes any bones about being anything other than a really specialist in-depth um uh, way, way of presenting tactical information so do you have any thoughts on that do you think there's a specifically german aspect to that or do you think it just so happened that the people who were there wanting to do the this sort of work just happened to be uh, people who probably would want to go into the the club side of things eventually yeah i think it was really about the attention of the people involved in the project at the time uh, or even then some people followed uh, over the years and and also joined uh, spielverlagerung most of them were not necessarily interested in becoming journalists um, I mean, all of them, all of all of the guys were students when they, or something like stu- you know, students or or in in some form apprentice or whatever. But they weren't at that phase uh, of their life, at that stage of their life. Um, so yeah, I mean, <laughs> uh, I think most of them wanted to be coaches or analysts or something like that or scouts, and um, most of them became coaches, scouts, analysts. Um, so the the attention, um, the aspirations were different. Um, but that was more of a personal thing, I guess, because my aspiration was always, or well, it wasn't always, I mean, I, when I was like first year student, I didn't know what the hell I was doing or what I wanted to do. <laughs> I just wanted to go out, uh, party, uh, meet girls and, you know, do, do football stuff. Um, so I don't know, but over the years, I, I realized that like media is kind of what I want to do. Um, and Spiel for Lang was also a good launching platform for me. And for a few other guys who also wanted to go into media, uh, but most of the guys at Spiel Verlangen wanted to do coaching. Um, and that's a decision, I mean, that's just per- personal preference. Um, I mean, Michael Cox told me once years ago that he was also approached by clubs um, over, over, over the time. Um, and they asked him, would you like to like do, I don't know, opposition analysis for us or something like that. And he, I think he, reche- he, re- he rejected the offers or said, you know, politely declined. No, it's not nothing for me. Sorry. Um, but I mean, he could have maybe done that, but uh, he was more in- interested in working for media, you know, writing blogs on ESPN or something, which is, I mean, totally understandable. Um, and I think with Jonathan Wilson, a little bit of an older generation or uh, like the previous generation, basically before like Cox and I and others. Um, I mean, he is a journalist and he's a writer and um, that's what he did, but he also specialized. And I think what you also see right now or what you have seen in the, in the past few years in sports media is really further specialization um, in terms of like what you actually cover. I mean, there are still like the match report guys who are just, you know, sitting in the stadium and doing their match report afterwards or something like that or doing the typical ABC interviews. 
um, but you also see guys are more specialized in sports politics or maybe in tactics or maybe in psychology or maybe in mental health. I mean, it, it, they still do like other work, but, you know, or maybe some, some guys are more specialized in writing portraits about players and coaches uh, or writing, writing long-form repertoires. Um, so I guess uh, specialization happened in sports media uh, 10 years ago or so when you looked at, at the newspapers. I mean, it was just full of match reports and interviews with coaches and players and a little bit in between. But... Uh, Uh, how many articles were published on I don't know a sport political issue one or two a month basic maybe but it had to had to be something really special um, I mean today like if you uh, look into some news newspapers or radio uh, programs I mean you see a lot about Qatar and you now Russia and so on so I think specialization was also a kind of a, a thing that happened over the or has happened uh, over I don't know the past 10 years I guess so Spiefelang also I mean kind of really helped by circumstances in a way <laughs> <laughs> In terms of the the project itself, you're obviously the the editor of Spielverlagerung, and I'm kind of interested to talk a little bit about the editorial line because obviously you're very happy publishing really long pieces, and we're talking like ten thousand word plus pieces. And I just wondered if like the idea was just to go as granular as 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 possible or as necessary without any worry for length at the beginning. I mean, it, it really developed over time. I think like the, the first, uh, if if you look at back at the first years of Spielverlagerung, there weren't these long pieces. Um, not not like to that extent at least. It was somewhat shorter, and we had much more like on the on the German uh, edition. Um, we had much more like typical 1,500 or 1,200 word uh, match, match reports, but match analysis. Like there was, you know, when when a Bundesliga weekend was over, there were like three, four articles on different Bundesliga matches. Uh, because of course we focused on the Bundesliga. And, uh, you know, you got like your uh, 1,200 words on Nür Nürnberg against uh, Gladbach. And you got like uh, the same thing on Dortmund against uh, Hertha uh, Berlin or something, you know. Um, so it changed a little bit over time. I think uh, guys got, and myself included, we, we got a little bit tired of just writing these pieces because it was, uh, you know, over time it is the same often, especially if you, if, if I mean, I remember that like for a few weeks I wrote about Cologne the, uh, and like after four articles it was basically always the same. <laughs> so I was like, okay, um, now I should do something else. And then um, some guys decided to write less in terms of like the number of articles but instead write more in-depth articles on like uh, certain issues, certain subjects. And that's when really like these 10,000 word pieces came about. And and then we, we started to do more about like, all right, I write a 10,000 word piece about a team about the last six months of the team. Like I did that on Atletico Madrid, for instance, when they really got, you know, up there and, and Diego Simeone uh, ruled the world for a little while, or it seemed like it. Or the same with like, I remember like I did a long piece on Southampton under... Um, Uh, Ronald Koeman, for instance, you know, when, when Southampton had that great year with like Morgan Snyder Long and so on. Um, I remember that and uh, different stuff like that happened. Um, and we, we really changed a little bit of the content, you know, in terms of like quantity and quality. Um, and now, yes, I mean, especially if, if guys uh, approach the English edition of, of Spielverlagerung and they sent me these um, sample pieces, I mean, I'm approached like, hey, can I write for Spielverlagerung? I'm approached a lot. And they um, then sent me like 10,000 words on Sampdoria or 10,000 words on Verona or whatever, you know, like 10,000 words on Krasnodar or something. <laughs> It's really crazy. Um, but I think like also because some few Spielverlagerung more as a platform to uh, present themselves as analysts and uh, not so much as writers, especially like... They, You know, they, they can do great analysis and that's all what it's all about, especially on the English side, I think. Um, yeah, so it, it it has changed in a way. And I mean, I, when I get sent these guest pieces or these, these pieces, uh, this draft, basically, we, of course, do some editing. 
but I try to leave it as untouched as possible, I guess, because I, I like that like uh, guys have different styles, or guys and girls have different styles. Um, I think it, it shouldn't be too homogenous. Um, and I also don't want to, because I mean, if you read, read these 10,000 word pieces and you go sentence by sentence, first of all, I wouldn't be, I mean, <laughs> uh, give me, give me free time until Christmas, uh, something <laughs> like that. Uh, and also sometimes it's really complicated. And what, what, what would the editing process be? I mean, you can of course uh, change the commas if, if there's a, if there's a mistake, but, uh, I mean, rewriting, uh, paragraphs. Uh, it's kind of difficult sometimes even you know it's not like in the newspaper article if you rewrite one paragraph it's okay because usually you understand you totally understand what's going on sometimes you have to leave it a little bit like it is uh, we also have have writers of course non-native uh, speakers so um there's a little bit of an issue but even there I have, I, I, we have like kind of the philosophy it's not 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 the worst thing in the world if like you, you read that someone is not a native speaker someone is from Russia or someone is from Croatia or someone is from Turkey or so or from whatever from from Spain I don't I don't really think that's a bad thing if you if you read it that's that that's not a non-native not a native speaker sorry uh hard for me to say <laughs> uh, but uh yeah i mean i guess i guess that's also kind of the thing about spielverlagung as an international website or as an international project it's not just a hey there are some uk guys and some some us guys and maybe a canadian and maybe there are a few germans but that's it no why i mean why not I'm interested in the, the concept of audience, so who you consider the audience to be, because a lot of this, the, the stuff that you're saying does make it sound as though the content takes the, the sort of primary position. It's, it's kind of like, we're going to put the content out there, we're going to be proud of that content, but at the end of the day, the content is the content, and people can take it as they like it. And um, I suppose I'm interested in whether or not you think that idea of, of audience or that approach to audience has, has remained the same over the course of the decade. I think in a way it has actually and funnily enough I mean even if we were on top of the game basically and had like these five million views uh, over a year or something like uni unique views um, even then I, I don't know if it was five million but I remember like one crazy one crazy number in 2013 which really with the Champions League uh, final and so on I remember there was like crazy numbers there for a block uh, in the, run independently like without anything um, basically but I think the approach was always the same we don't really care if uh article gets uh, 10,000 views or 100,000 views, um, if the article is good, it, it gets published. I mean, also because no one got paid uh, in, 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 in a sense. Um, there were a little bit of, there were some, of course, some payment was, was done, but it wasn't like, oh, you get paid per article, 50 bucks or something. No, it wasn't like that. Um, and also sometimes, even if article is very nerdy and might not be read by a thousand people, but if it's a good article, then it should be on our website. Um, because that's what it's all about. It's like kind of like a, a university textbook. Um, I mean, there are look into a library. If if you if you people still go into libraries, look into a library. There are some great textbooks, but they are you know really dusty uh, because they are only read by five people over five years or something. Um, but it's still it's still worth and it's still necessary in my opinion that these books are there because even if like only five people read it, it has enlightened five people. Um, so. Yeah, we, we never really thought about it like, oh, we have to, I know we have to uh, only pop, uh, only push like headlines, which uh, to our and viewer, uh, readers and viewers, and uh, we should only write about Bayern Munich and Borussia Dortmund and maybe the international uh, you know, Real Madrid and Manchester United so we get viewers. 
Um, surely, I mean, yes, of course, uh, Bayern and Dortmund were, were more covered than maybe Cologne and Bielefeld, but that was also because like Bayern and Dortmund are more interesting in terms of tactics uh, with Klopp and Guardiola and Heinkes and you know all these all these Tuchel, all these uh, coaches. Of course, there's a lot of a lot of things you can unpack, um, and also internally, like um, I mean, we had a couple of Dortmund and a couple of Bayern fans. <laughs> uh, it's easy to watch the games then. Um, yeah, but we never had like the, uh, an audience strategy or something. I, I don't. I don't think that the world was it was, and I think it's also very rewarding if you then uh, get um, still views for like niche articles. I think it's very rewarding and really helps. And yeah, I mean, in the end, uh, it, it worked out quite well. I think. I wanted to move on to talk about a question that I often come across as someone who does a lot of public-facing tactic tactics work, uh, and that is that given that the sort of an- analysis that, that we're doing here is, is I think, probably best described as being post-hoc after the fact, this is people sitting down watching football and then looking for pattern recognition and trying to work out what it is that the coach coaches are doing. It's very different from the processes, obviously, that the coaches are employing, which is actually the opposite. You start with the, the theory and you try and instill that into practice in the players, and I guess the big question I always have in, in, in my head whenever I'm doing tactics and, and analysis analysis work is, is there a danger that we end up in a completely different place to where the coaches start from? And I wonder, I mean, you, you will have thought about this problem, presumably. So I wonder if you had any takes on this. One of my takes is actually that um, what we what I try to do and what a lot of guys try to do is um, not discuss the, like the potential or possible intention of a coach too much. Uh, be more like, uh, clear cut what happened but from a more tactical point of view um, so describe what happened and um, describe how like this certain dynamics happened you know or like the interact like certain things interacted with each other on the field I think there's a communication or like a, a non-verbal communication be- uh, between um, parts of teams and also opposition teams you know like one team does that the other team does that and then there's a reaction there's a reaction again like you know counter reaction and so on and I think uh, going much more in depth with with the analysis of these things, and not uh, writing two paragraphs about uh, about like uh, coach A probably thought about this, this, and that. I mean, sometimes it's very evident. Or if coach A talked about it afterwards, then you still have to listen to his words because sometimes, I mean, you know, it's like PR. Um, but then you can discuss it. Otherwise, you shouldn't go into oh. Coach A probably thought uh, that he should move around his uh, two center midfielders because whatever. No, don't do that um, because then you get into speculation. And I had discussions over the years with a lot of people, also with critics of Spielverlagung and with critics of like tactics writing. Um, journalists, often journalists, by the way, um, who are like, yeah, but you don't know what the coach wants to do because you're not in the locker room beforehand. And I said, yes, and we don't write what the coach wants to do because we don't know, we write what happened on the field. And if like a match plan didn't really, didn't unfold the way the coach wanted it, then we write about what happened and that maybe something went wrong, but you know, we don't write about the match plan we don't know. Because that's also, I think intellectually, it's it's kind of, it's kind of, I don't know, it's, it's, it's not, not really something you should do from an intellectual point of view, I think. Yeah, and I think, you know, when it comes to Spiel Verlagerung, you've clearly been doing something right because a lot of your alumni have moved on into the industry themselves. So obviously René Maric is the poster boy, but there's obviously other success stories as well. Jack Lines at Leicester, Tom Payne at Bolton Wanderers, Adin Osman Basic at Houston Dynamo. And I'm sure you could tell me long lists of many more of these people. But we did have a question from one of our patrons, Jeff Russell, who asked... 
How does Constantin feel about the public work to private work pipeline? I don't have an egg in the basket either way, but it does seem to be a hot topic. Whether the athletic hiring people or joining clubs should one ever be concerned in the first place? Uh, just wondered what your take was on the movement into the industry, and uh, you know, like I've said, surely it's confirmation that you must be doing something right at Spielberg. Yes, of course. Uh, I mean, I think so. It, it, that that Rene Moritz and others uh, had their big breakthrough was, wasn't just based on their work for Spielverlagerung. Spielverlagerung opened doors for them, but they still like on the side that their coaching degrees and that they're like, uh, I mean, Rene and others, uh, they still coach their Sunday league teams or their under uh, 14 teams or something, you know, like like the uh, they did the, the low level work that's not really glorious and no one watches it, and but they still did it. Um, you, I mean, you, sh- you should remember that by because I think sometimes people think, ah, I just write a couple of uh, successful blogs or blog posts and then I I get hired by Bayern Munich. No, it's not like that. You still have to do other work and, you know, also your academic work in a way. Um, it's also helpful and, you know, uh, getting your degrees uh, in terms of coaching degrees, but maybe also getting university degree helps and, and stuff like that. Um, so, yes, we did we did a lot of things right. Um, I mean, the, the stories behind some guys being hired was that uh, a coach read a piece about his own team and then reached out to the author. Uh, and then maybe wanted to discuss it a little bit. And then maybe, you know, then a relationship developed and then uh, someone from Spielverlagerung got hired or got at least offered a position and then, you know, you move from there. Um, it helped, of course, um, because coaches, I mean, some coaches were like, ah, that's everything Spielverlagerung does, everything these guys do, they don't know they don't know anything. But secretly, there were also a lot of uh, coaches in the German Bundesliga, in the Austrian Bundesliga, in the Bundesliga 2 and in the MLS and in even in the championship in England. And they said, actually, I mean, you guys are 95% right. You know, maybe 5% not. And maybe there is the, like, the intention of the coach and the match plan and so on. You don't know my match plan, all right? But, I mean, if I pull you inside, if I give you a job within my head of, or within my analytics department, for instance, then you know my match plan, by the way, you know, because I tell you. Uh, and then we can go from there. That's the last 5%, maybe, I, uh, before you are perfect, in a way, uh, to come back to your previous question. So, um, I guess... We we did a we did a lot of things right. I mean, uh, we also got feedback over the years that uh, some uh, that uh, that's totally BS and that's not right. Blah blah blah. From clubs, sometimes clubs got angry. Hmm. I, I had a few clubs getting angry at me when I wrote like scouting reports about players and about their weaknesses and strengths because uh, some players were like eh, some club, clubs were like eh, don't write about our players. Like, <laughs> don't don't reveal too much. <laughs> kind of like that. Uh, and I also remember that I. Uh, wrote a few in-depth pieces on like the weaknesses of team A or team B and then team A or team B reached out to me and like could you unpublish please uh, because <laughs> we don't want uh, to read uh, have our teams read that uh, well I was like oh I'm in freedom of press that's <laughs> 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 freedom of press freedom of press um, something like that and then of course I mean some teams consider like maybe we should hire these guys so they finally shut up um, <laughs> that's also something that happens sometimes right um, no but I, I know that's a hot topic Topic and I think a lot of people aspire to you know go the go the route some some Spielverlag guys uh, went a few years ago. Um, I think you have to do a lot of legwork. You have to do a lot of like groundwork um, outside of just writing blogs, uh, getting coaching degrees, also networking. Um, because if you're just sitting in your basement and writing blogs, sorry, no one will find you. Getting academic degree maybe in something that's also related to football with to sports like psychology or you know medicine or whatever helps um, if you want to go that route of course I mean I'm I'm speaking as a as a PhD in history so what what do, what do I know <laughs> Yeah you know a lot of these guys obviously 
I'm, I'm interested in if they've spoken to you about the experience of going into clubs because presumably that could be quite a difficult process to negotiate as well. I think if you're doing a lot of stuff from sort of the outside and then and then you work your way in, um, just simply writing, as you've said, from, from your basement about about <laughs> tactics isn't going to prepare you for actually the, the sorts of things that you're going to have to negotiate on a, on a daily basis, right? Of course, yes. Uh, I mean, and also one um, requirement to be really successful in, in a job like uh, assistant coach or so, or so is also uh, being a decent human being. Uh, let's let's put it like that, right? I mean, um, or being someone who's fairly sociable. Uh, <laughs> I mean, otherwise you, you won't survive. Uh, that's also the networking part I just mentioned, you know, networking, uh, reaching out to people, to, uh, speaking to people, spending hours with other assistant coaches or coaches or scouts and, and talking and discussing uh, football with them uh, don't underestimate that um, because always you are you, you won't be successful I, I guess because once you are in, in a club uh, a club works a little bit like a company but it's also uh, much different like a like Company as a company, like I don't know, you know, like some some uh, ABC company uh, about uh, you know like a car manufacturer or something. It's it's different. Football club is different. There are far less people there. Um, there are a lot of strong personalities. Even even among the assistant coaches, even there, there are a lot of strong personalities. You got the sporting directors, you got the CEOs, you got the chief executives, you got the press officer, and so on. You know, like a lot of a lot of alpha males out there. Uh, don't underestimate that. Uh, what I what I would say about like the guys who came from Spielverlagen or even from other blocks and got hired by um, clubs, what I think most guys experience what that when they got hired, they usually got hired by a coach who was impressed by their work, like uh, Craig Berhalter or Marco Rosa and so on. And these coaches were very open-minded, and these coaches were very um, helpful in helping the guys, you know, getting adapted to the new job, getting adapted to a new environment. And also because these coaches were had a certain mindset, usually their assistants had a certain mindset. Not all of them. Some of them didn't. But some had uh, some assistants had the same mindset and they were very open-minded overall. So that's why I say um, the transition was maybe not easy, but it was manageable for the guys. Um, and maybe there were some experiences, I don't know, and maybe, you know, you never know, there are probably also some minefields, um, and in hindsight, maybe you laugh about it, and at the time, you didn't laugh about it, uh, th but that's life, right? Um, I mean, that, that happens in, in personal relationships, that happens in, in professional relationships. Um, I mean, there are minefields, and there are disappointments, and uh, there are maybe sleepless nights, uh, but overall, I think uh, what really helped was that uh, Marco Rosa, for instance, who hired Rene Morich, I mean, Marco Rosa wanted Rene to be there, um, so of course he was helpful. Um, and I think also the environment in clubs has changed a little bit. Um, they're still like the old guard, but the old guard is more sitting in boardrooms or being like in the executive uh, floor, on, on the executive floor, uh, while the guys who do really the, the sporting type of work, the analysis and the coaching uh, are d outside on the pitch or maybe down in the basement, you know, uh, doing like the video editing or something, um, which I, I mean, I know a couple of clubs there, usually the video, video editing was done in the basement. I don't know why, <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, it, was, it was very dark down there. Uh, but you no, know, but really, I mean, these, uh, the, the environment among the coaches and analysts was, is, I think is, is, fairly open of course there are exceptions to this rule but uh th these exceptions would never hire a blogger let's be honest 
I want to talk quickly about creativity within tactics writing uh, just before we move on to more general issues. So I've actually got a quote from you here from an interview you did with Reuters. Uh, you said, to make full use of analytics, you need people with deep knowledge. The people who do blogging and online analysis are usually young, hungry and smart. Instead of playing professionally, they spend their teens and 20s dissecting the game from the sideline or in front of their computer screen. They're obsessed with football and try to find new analytical angles. There's a genuine quest for knowledge and I think a lot of this does sound quite descriptive rather than prescriptive you've talked about just what actually happens writing about what actually happens on the field what about the the more creative aspect of it do you think that there is a space in within this sort of analysis for a more prescriptive type of writing there is of course I mean and I think Spiefelang tried to do with like essays and and stuff on you know the more philosophical philosophical side of the game in a way you know like uh, giving a few of why certain developments happened but as I said like more you know more from a philosophical point of view uh, but I think that really when it comes down to the to the meat of the bone um, and when it comes down to the bone of the matter uh, it's really uh, you have to be very specific very accurate when it comes to analysis analyzing what really goes down on the field um because that's what the coaches want in the in, inside or inside the club buildings that's what they want when it comes to game preparation um being creative is the next step usually you start when you when you start at a club you're usually the guy who does the analysis and analysis really more about like um being descriptive but also being very precise uh, in your description, which is something I think people underestimate sometimes, you know, because they can you can get a little, especially with football, because football is such a such a loose game in a way, you know, compared to basketball, for instance. Basketball is uh, much more. Uh, it's also five five against five, and and I mean like American football is like on top of that. What I what I just mean, yeah, it's very very specific in terms of what happens. Football is much more looser, much more you know free flowing. Uh, that's why I think sometimes uh, s- certain nations are not really getting used to football in, in a way because it's very free-flowing uh, little little rule book um, you know not much not much uh, stop and uh, start and stop going on um, so of course you can get a little bit lazy with your analysis so you shouldn't um, once you are there once you show that you're a good analyst the next step is becoming maybe the assistant coach and then giving the creative ideas not only pre- pre- presenting this uh, problems but also presenting solutions and then it gets about in-game coaching and then it gets about pre- pre-game coaching and about technical changes and about uh, certain roles for certain players and that's the creative part of the of the of the gig um a good coach does both or a good a good team a good staff does both um and a good assistant coach for instance uh, can be can do both um i think when, when i compare it to like let's say media um, usually you, when you're like a television reporter you start off with uh, doing news hits and doing like one minute news piece one minute news piece one minute news piece once you are done that then you do the five minute uh, you know in depth or more in depth piece once you are done that then you can do a 30 minute documentary and you can be cre- as creative as you as you want to be um, so but it goes from like showing that you can really have the tool set and you can really do the, do the somewhat mundane work and then moving on to being more creative. Um, and then, you know, and then not only pre- uh, presenting a problem, but also presenting solutions when we talk about football. And, and that's why I think, like, at first you are more of a d- describer and uh, not so much a prescriber. <laughs> I'm interested to move just quickly before we finish to talk a little bit about the tactics media space. And I wondered if mm-hmm. we could just talk a little bit about where you think the tactics media is. And maybe one of the things I've noticed recently is it feels as though we've seen football 
data analytics pushed to the forefront of the mainstream. And I wondered if you think that there's a similar niche waiting to be filled with tactical analysis or whether or not you think it's basically already there with, with what we've got. But if you could just talk through the, the sort of hinterland of tactics media right now, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, it really depends a little bit from, from country to country. I think like in France, for for instance, the tactics media is much more developed uh, than uh, maybe in uh, Germany, hard to say. Um, I mean, when I look from a, from a German perspective, I see more and more journalists trying to get into the tactics um, realm and trying to, you know, try uh, test themselves out, um, pretending to be tactics writers, whatever. Um, I think also something some people think some journalists for instance think like oh that's actually easy you know you just watch the game you describe the formations and you do this and this and then then it's done um, and maybe it is easy I don't know I mean hard to say but I think uh, you, you need you need a certain understanding of the game then what also happens is of course um, and you see it especially I think in broadcasting media there is a there is, of course, the expert, the ex, the former player, the former coach, or the like, the the jobless coach, basically uh, working in that field a little bit. You know, when you got the co-commentator who is like a former player, and then they try to cover the the tactical side of things uh, more because then they can uh, speak with authority. I mean, they've been there, done that, and so on. You know, even if they don't really understand all the things, but uh, they have a certain authority, which of course a normal like journalist writer wouldn't have. Um, so that happens also and has, I think, also become wider and, and progressed or not progressed, but, uh, you know, become wider in terms of like how many co-commentators are there. I mean, you see in Germany, there are more and more former players working as co-commentators or working as studio experts or whatever um, and covering that side of the field in a way. So I think that there is a bit of a change. The, what, what you sp what you also mentioned is the the statistical analysis. I think that's also that's that's uh, at, um, a hemisphere. That's a space in, in terms of media um, where you need really specialists because when you look at who does it. Um, these guys are number guys. They have maybe studied st uh, statistics at university. They have studied math. They have studied something like computer science, whatever. Um, so you're you're sorry, but you're a fairly typical journalist with like his uh, po uh, political science degree. Um, I don't know if, if he or she really can do it, uh, that kind of work because you know you need specialized knowledge um, and. I mean, it's not like you can just you know do an online course and then you are all of a sudden you're a, st a stats expert. So. Um, I guess that there will be a space within media that will be occupied by a fairly limited number of people, and it will continue to do so. Um, but also, but on the other hand, I think what uh, the statistics departments or whatever you want to call it produce is something that will be exploited then by mainstream media more and more. I mean, you see, uh, all, although I have to say sometimes used wrongly, of course. I mean, they um, the statistic uh, that the mainstream media often or often but sometimes uses. Um, statistics wrong like expected goals for instance something uh, is a trendy number now and but when i look at what do you sometimes do with uh, expected goals it's just it's just totally wrong and like uh, the experts and and expected goals they you know pull their hair out if they have any um so <laughs> it's it's just it yeah but it happens but you see really the mainstream media wants to go into the statistics analysis because they can also create like nice looking graphs and uh, all this stuff yeah, and then they uh, you know uh, throw a few numbers on the wall during the half time and it looks like they are you know all, all in on like uh, in-depth analysis uh, although they are not and they wouldn't probably be able to describe what they actually show there um, but it started of course with like possession percentage and so on but it has developed a little bit and I think it will further develop uh, but there's also a ceiling for all of this because 
and I see it when I work for uh, media broadcasting stations as like a commentator, for instance. So um, there is a ceiling for it uh, because emotions and being a little bit out there and crazy and, you know, uh, transporting something like that is still important in football broadcasting and football media. Um, it's just it's just what it is. I mean, there are still some of the stations who, who own the television rights. They want emotions first and then analysis second, which I, in a way, I understand because, I mean, I became a football fan because I want to, I played football, but also I like football because there is emotions involved and I'm not like an emotionalist guy. I mean, when I do commentary, I, I get much more pumped up if there are fans inside the stadium, which I noticed when there were not fans inside the stadium because I noticed, oh, I'm kind of like a little bit low here, you know, I, I don't go up there and uh, it's it's kind of a little bit dragging right now. Uh, when there are fans inside the stadium, you get much more emotional. Um, and I think that's a part of the game you, you should never neglect in terms of like presenting the game to the viewer, to the listener, to the reader, um, especially to the viewer and the, the listener. Um, so there is a ceiling for everything, but I, I also think like there should be a ceiling because I don't want to watch a football game and have 90 minutes plus halftime full of only technical and statistical analysis. Because I mean, even I would say that's too much. Sorry, I don't want that. I also want like a screaming commentator uh, after I don't know a free a free free comeback or something you know like <laughs> I want that because like that is it's cool but I think uh, right now we are in a good place and um, I wouldn't be too critical of uh, like football media I I know a lot of people are but you still have to understand what they do and what what they try to do they try to reach everyone and not just if you want yeah maybe an indulgent question obviously i'm just starting out on this podcast you've been doing tactical media for 10 years now so do you have any advice for me on how to cover tactics well in the media space oh that's that's a hard one um i i think you you have to connect two things you have to connect um surely analysis but you still have to connect it to um let's i wouldn't say creating a narrative but you you should still connect it to a little bit of a, of a narrative that that's going on i mean I, I mentioned diego simeone with atletico madrid like i think the best stories written about atletico when they were really at the pinnacle of their game was 90 80 uh, percent or 75 percent analysis but still 25 percent of like feeling the club feeling the coach what's going on there what's what's kind of you know what is it what is it maybe between the lines a little bit reading there um i think i mean you're a leeds united or you're a marcelo belza fan and and you look at like Bielsa and, and Leeds. Yes, of course, look at the tactics, look at what he did, but also look a little bit about the personality, look a little bit about the club, about the personalities on the pitch, like who they are, um, and try not over-interpreting uh, things like that, like personality and so on, but still grasping a little bit. Bring, bring together emotions, personality, and then analysis. So you can sell analysis much, much better than just try uh, try analysis like it's it's written like a university paper. What you want to do if you are in the media, in the, in the really in the more mainstream media space, which you usually are when you launch a podcast and it's available on iTunes, uh, it's, it might be niche, but it's still mainstream in a way, uh, still... Um, um, try to present it in a way that you can really catch a lot of people because then and that's something maybe Spieferlang did in a completely different way but that was five six seven ten years ago um, if you catch more people then more people will get interested in in tactics and tactical analysis because what you have to understand is today there is a fairly not large but there is a fairly sized per a portion of football fans that are already interested in football tactics you have them but there are also some who aren't 
and it's uh, it's more about catching them because the people who are already interested they already know a lot of things they already read all the blogs and they already will listen to your podcast or to our podcast uh, but what about these who are on on the on the edge you know on the brink of maybe going going down a road catch them by you know cre uh, showing or presenting a good narrative plus a good analysis and then you might catch them or else maybe you, you won't but um i mean it's 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 probably worth a try <laughs> well i appreciate that but i cannot end this podcast without speaking to you about jesse marsh two leads you've had a piece out in the times this morning you have been on the bbc talking about it as well i just wondered what your general take is on this new move for leeds united I think it's uh, or it might be a smooth transition in a way. Um, I mean, Jesse Marsh is somewhat of a disciple of Ralph Rangnick, um, and he is—he he came to success. He came to no, uh, notoriety uh, through the Red Bull system. I mean, he joined Red Bull in early 2016. He was the protege of Red Bull in a way. You know, they, they prepped him to become the RB Leipzig head coach. Of course, we know that it didn't work out. Um, but he, you know, he had one year as an assistant at Leipzig. Then he coached Salzburg. Then he came back to Leipzig to get the head coach position. Um, and Leipzig is the biggest club within that Red Bull system. It's it's the, the pinnacle, so to say, if you're the coach there. Um, so they prepped him. It didn't work out, but still he's very influenced by Red Bull and the, that pressing system, that pressing style, that high intense style. Um, Marcelo Pelsa is also a high intense coach. I have criticized him in the, in the past. I think sometimes his, his uh, style is almost almost too, not mechanical, but he demands almost too much from his players at times, you know, that they, they can't really fulfill what he wants them to do in terms of athleticism, in terms of stamina, in terms of just executing ideas. Uh, it's a little bit too much. I think Jesse Marsh is a bit more of a traditional coach. Uh, with a more traditional tactical system, with more traditional roles, but still um, embracing the idea of high intensity, high pressing, counter pressing, transition attacks. So I think the transition from Bielsa to Marsh could be fairly smoothly. Big question mark is um, Marsh has coached Salzburg in the Austrian Bundesliga. I mean, the Austrian Bundesliga was a non-competition basically because they were just, you know, they were oversized as, as a team they had players it was it was crazy uh, when you compare to like the, your, your average Austrian Bundesliga side and they did well in, in Europe I think um, then he came to Leipzig in the Bundesliga competitive environment Leipzig lost a couple of players in the last summer so he had to um, find ways to adapt uh, to these losses and to um, also integrate new players and I think he didn't do that well and um, so I mean there's a, bit, a little bit of a question mark how competitive is he how really is he up to par when he is in a in one of these major leagues being a Bundesliga being Premier League I know some of the Eng English fans think like the Premier League is uh, head, head and shoulders above <laughs> of the Bundesliga I disagree by the way um, but that's a different story uh, but what I also want to say is Jesse Marsh was criticized by Leipzig players not really openly but you know through the media uh, in the later stages of his time at Leipzig and he was criticized for being a little bit maybe too laid back too like collegial to you know to nice guy uh nice guy like uh, even if they played badly uh he still didn't like you know uh just put their heads uh, down the toilet or something <laughs> which sometimes sometimes you maybe need to do that with teams especially like if you have a team like leipzig uh, leipzig they don't really have any um leaders you know like natural leaders they have a, a few like willy orban or peter gulacci that uh, you know but still it's not really a, a team driven by leaders so the coach has to be a leader elites is a little bit different but but still, I think Marsh has to be, especially in relegation battle, he has to be really uh, on fire uh, in the in the dressing room. He, he needs to find these leaders or he has to be a leader himself. Most positive thing about Jesse Marsh is he is quite honest with people and he's quite honest with himself. And I think he's very self-reflective. 
I think he will he will do better at Leeds than he did at Leipzig because he had a few months to reflect on his mistakes. He will change a little bit. And um, also, I think the, the reactive style he has, and he has a bit of a reactive style, works quite well for a relegation battle side. Down to earth, being honest, I think that works. And I think Marsh is uh, fit for Leeds. And uh, I hope he doesn't prove me wrong. And, and now he fumbles the whole thing <laughs> and they get back to the championship. So, uh, Chessie... I mean, <laughs> we are we, we are on the Chessie Constantine basis. Uh, so I guess uh, if if he if he listens to this podcast and he will, of course, uh, then I I uh, encourage you to not f it up. All right, Chessie. <laughs> well, Constantine, it's been great chatting to you. You're doing plenty of things at the moment. Is there anything that you wanted to push in particular? So, I mean, if you're a German speaker, um, then you can go on my uh, YouTube channel. I I had a three month break. There was a little bit of uh, quietness there, but uh, now I'm, I'm back and uh, every two weeks I publish a video on often something related to, to Bundesliga or German football. But if you're a German speaker, of course, uh, check it out. You can just, it's just uh, Konstantin Eckner, uh, the YouTube channel, the name, you can find it, uh, youtube.com slash Konstantin Eckner, Konstantin with a C. So that's something you can check out. And otherwise, I would just encourage you to check out my Twitter Twitter uh, account, of course, cc underscore Eckner, E-C-K-N-E-R, where I publish all my things, be it on BBC, Times, ESP, piano all the german stuff i do for radio for instance or i now will also go into new uh, video and tv projects where i will be a host um you know explain tactics so uh, that will be fun and also checking out my instagram constantine eckner uh, just at constantine eckner uh, checking out then if you need any fashion advice <laughs> or uh, if you check out my stories i also will uh, you know make fun about football basically sometimes <laughs> or or often make fun about myself like when i'm on the bbc and i'm i will now publish a story and ask if i wear pants when i'm on the bbc because <laughs> you don't see my lower side uh, or my lower half and uh, i mean there's a question if i ever wore uh, pants when uh, <laughs> on the BBC Live, um, and I'll give you a, a hint. Maybe, uh, oh no, I don't, I don't. Like, guess, guess for yourself. Or ever wear pants there? <laughs> and, uh, and, and you can also guess for yourself if I wore pants during this podcast episode, of course. Yeah, and I won't tell anyone. So your secret is safe with me. But we are continuing the German football theme in the next episode on this podcast, which will be coming out later in the month. I will be talking to Case von Hemmen and Aaron Meniz about Ralf Rangnick and his Manchester United travails. I don't know if we can call them that yet, but we will be talking everything about uh, Ralf Rangnick and the Red Bull system. So following on from Jesse Marsh, uh, but talking about how that's fitted in at Manchester United. So do keep an eye out for that. But for now, all there is for me to do is to say thank you so much, Constantin, for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. And thanks for uh, basically uh, being part of launch here uh, of your new podcast. And I will be excited to listen to uh, further episodes and um, yeah, and just follow your project. And maybe I will uh, celebrate a comeback in, I don't know, six months mm. or so. And then we will, of course, you know, maybe sip a, a little bit of champagne or something. <laughs> I don't know. You know, if, if, if you have your breakthrough with the podcast here or the podcast has, has its own breakthrough, then of course I will be glad, gladly coming back and of course, uh, you know, pick some of the laurels because it was all, all because of me. <laughs> <laughs> no, just just kidding. John, you're, you're doing a great work. You're doing great work on, on Twitter. And, and when you publish something on Medium or so, um, I like it. Uh, it's different. And I think different is good. And I think that fairly is an essence of what Spiefelong also did 10 years ago, being different and being good. And here's to being different and being good. Mm -hmm.